Today's conversation is with Gary Cady, a businessman. But the reason why we chose to have him on the pod is because he became sober about 15 years ago, and his journey <laughs> has been amazing. I hope it inspires you. I hope it inspires you and motivates you to make a change and to deal with the things that you like to deal with and the addictions and whether it's food or alcohol. In this particular case, we talk about his journey, when he started drinking, why he started to drink, and the negative impact that had on his health, but also his social life and his relationships. Today's conversation is on Becoming Sober with Gary Cady. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my pleasure to help you with your urological function and how to live better with age. Today, we're talking to Gary Cady, who he's done many wonderful things, as you know from the intro. And we're going to talk about what he does for a living because he does amazing things in that regard. I met Gary several years ago, and one of the first things that he expressed to me was, look, I've been sober for X amount of years. So sober from what? <laughs> sober from alcohol. Okay, great. And we had that discussion. And certainly within the last year, you've heard some of the previous podcast episodes on what to drink for prostate cancer. And within that episode, I talk about alcohol. I have another episode on alcohol consumption. The reason for that is because I've done some deep research, uh, certainly within the last year, of how bad is alcohol? And is there anything good from alcohol consumption? And what does it do to your prostate health? And what's the right drink, right? A, a glass of red wine a night. Who, who cares? Two glasses of red wine, four drinks a weekend, these type of things. So who better than somebody who've gone through it, actually? So I can geek out on the science and talk about that. But it's another experience altogether, right, Gary, to talk about, look, this is what really went down when I had an alcohol problem and the process of stopping and becoming sober. So, Gary, thank you so much, my brother, for, for coming on. Uh, it's a privilege and a pleasure, man. When you asked me, it was like, absolutely. I can't wait uh, to share because I know that there's a lot of people out there sick and suffering in secret silence. It just bears down on you and you can't, and there's no freedom in that. So I was there. I, I know what that feels like. I was, an, I call myself an accidental expert about this stuff because I didn't want to exactly. be an expert in this. You know, this is not the path that I wanted to take, but I'm glad I did. Well, I love it, Gary. And before we go into how you became sober, you know, you do something completely different for a living that's actually probably as interesting. Tell us a little bit about what you do for a living in your business. Yeah, I'm a founder of a company. It's called Next Level Practice. And we've been in business throughout 30 years. And we work directly with practitioners, dental practitioners. And, you know, as you know, medical yeah. professionals are not trained to run a successful business. So we just offload that for them and we help them. We assist and outsource the entire system for them. And we build. I invented something that I saw when I was talking to hygienists. My dad had a heart attack. Dental hygienist. Dental hygienist. Yes, thank you for that. Yeah. I was training some dental hygienists back in my early days, and uh, they asked, how was his periodontal disease? And I was like, what do you mean, how is his periodontal disease? And she, they were like, don't you know the connection between the mouth and the body and, and, and heart disease? And it was back in the day when early research was happening. And it just, it was like the holy grail for me. And we invented something, and our mutual friend helped me name it. It's called Complete Health Dentistry. Michael Fishman named that category of dentistry where the mouth is the gateway to you know overall health and preventive care. So it, it took me down a career path, really, where I codified and built a business model that dentists are educating from you know not just drilling, filling, and billing, but actually transforming the health of uh, their patients. Because I believe that dental practice mm -hmm. is is the hub for health because you come in to see your hygienist twice a year, you know, people don't go to see you once a year. They don't want to have their, you know, finger up their butt. Like I, you know, it's like they can't just <laughs> right. can't wait for that. Now the good ones, the smart ones actually do. Yeah. But ultimately the bottom line is we created a preventative complete health dental system. And I got into the science. I'm not, I'm a business and team development systems process purpose, that kind of thing. And geo, I geeked out into the science because I realized like, 
I don't want to have dementia. I don't want to have heart disease. I don't want to have prostate cancer. So I got obsessed with finding people like you that, that do God's work. I call it God's work because it's like, you can help me prevent and avoid chronic disease and, you know, cancers and things like that. And so that's, that's my background. It kind of ties into what we're going to talk about today. Do you set these practices up and that's it? Or do you continue to manage them throughout their lifespan? You know, they come to us for like time and money and frustration issues. And then they stay with us for our community because we have a collaborative community. We help them retire financially free. Oh, that's great. It's a, it's a whole career arc. We take, you know, young docs, middle, middle career docs or guys that are, you know, ready to fourth quarter docs that want to, you know, have their last drive. And we just make sure that their life works. So like, you know, like you take a holistic approach to your work, you know, it's like one thing, but it's many things, right? Like we're going to talk about today. That's our philosophy. We weren't just selling coaching, consulting, and training. We were selling lives that you love. You know, our doctors live lives that they absolutely love. They go through challenges like I do. And I share this from the stage. That's why it's like important. People need to know that not every, you know, in today's social media world, Gio, everybody's masking up and they're putting on a nice, you know, they're on a catamaran in Cabo watching whales flop and stuff like that. But nobody's really talking about what's really going on. And you don't, you know, that's what I like. And that's what I appreciate about you. You get to the heart of the matter. You talk about truths. And that to me, Gio is a like, I want to, I want to spend time with you and get this message out. And that's why I'm here. I love it. Lastly, I, I almost feel like I, I, I talk about doing God's work. I think you do God's work as well with what you do. And I agree with you from a dental perspective with most people when things get rough financially, is that the last thing they do is see their dentist, but a lot of systemic problems can come from there. So where are these practices? How do we, uh, where do they find practices that are associated with your company? Yeah, they can go to nextlevelpractice.com and you can go on there and you could just say, hey, I'm in this town and we'll we'll get you set up with a practice. We have over 6,000 practices in Canada, 45 states, the Caribbean. We just opened up Australia and we have Africa too, which is like, and you know, it's interesting when you have a high purpose, when you have a high purpose and people are clear about that high purpose and you do good work, it's like, it's the difference between promotion and attraction. When I first started, I had to promote myself. Then after, when you do good work like you do, it's like you're, you get people attracted to you and say, hey, can I, can I do this? I want to do this for my people in Australia. I want to do this for my people in, in Africa. You know, can you bring, can you come to Canada? And that's just how it, how it evolved over 30 years. We have over 6,000 practices practicing this way. You wrote about that on your amazing book, Raise Your Healthy Deserved Level, HDL. So it's a flip on words there with HDL. I love that. Is this book still available? Oh, yeah. It's actually had a resurgence. I wrote it 10 years ago after three years of getting sober, and we'll we'll tie that in. Um, but I actually wrote that book. It was three, you know, my first book was this one. I'll show you this. This is the first edition. It's now in its uh, eighth printing. This is the fundamentals of building. Wow. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. And this is the young guy that started back in the day and I was still drinking here. Oh, uh, wow. Who's that? <laughs> exactly. He is dark. You hair. actually look better now than that picture. I have to say, uh, and, and we talked about it before coming on, uh, coming on live. I was like, man, you, you're one of the best looking guys I know. Like, I, I, I can't have my wife look at your, like at your photos <laughs> or pictures. I, I can't do that. I mean, I, I'll get jealous. And, and we can also tie that into, cause I've also seen how people physically look better when they stop drinking. It's pretty amazing. Oh, oh, pretty amazing. And, and we can talk about why that happens. Cause again, I just got to dive deep. Let's go back, Gary. Let's go back when you had your first drink. Yeah. When was that? How old were you? Uh, I was about, um, I would say about 15 and I lived in North Brunswick, New Jersey, and I had a fake ID and I looked older. I was tall and, you know, I looked older and back then it wasn't a big deal. If you had like, you would go to Times Square, you would get a fake New Jersey license, um, pay 10 bucks and you know, boom, easy, easy peasy Boone's farm, strawberry Hill. That's what it was called. And then tango Uh with Joe Runchy and Brett Byrne, my two best friends. And we just snuck behind the school and drank it. And so you had your first drink, 15 years old. And there's a reason why I'm asking. Did you enjoy it? Was it, wow, this is great. Or was it, God, this is horrible. 
And my second question is, how did you feel? Did you feel like the life of the party or did you feel like dragged or what was it like for you? No, it was my social elixir. I was a scared kid. My dad used to beat me physically, mentally. I didn't know how it affected me. And I was really a shut down kid. I was shut down because I felt like I was unworthy. I was undeserving. Um, only people that get beaten like that are dogs, mm. like, you know, like back in the day. And like, and my, I didn't realize the impact that that had on me as a kid. And I, and I had a lot of thoughts spiraling in my head. And, and like, I never felt worthy wherever I was, I didn't feel mm. comfortable. So I was searching for peace and comfort. And when that burning, when that burn, it felt bad, it tasted bad, it was horrible, that tango, it was like pre-mixed, you know, screwdrivers. And it, but it burned all the way going down. I hated the feeling. And then all of a sudden, I was liberated, Gio. Mm. I felt like I got wings. Like, so when I see those Red Bull, you know, get your Mm. wings, that was me back then. And I just felt like I was chasing that feeling of peace, freedom, acceptance of myself. I didn't know all these things were going on, but I, I've done a right. lot of work. And this question is brilliant that you brought it up. Like, what was this, what was the turning point? And I, what I find is, and, and I sponsor a lot of guys, uh, is um, we're trying to get comfortable. We're trying to get comfortable in our own skin. Mm-hmm. That's what I see a lot of. That and like I don't belong. I'm trying to get comfortable. It gave me wings. I could talk to girls. Mm-hmm. Like, and then what happens is that first drunk, you try to chase that feeling, and then you never can get there again. It's like your first kiss. It's like you can't you get know, there um, again. There's a DJ who died from suicide. Uh, his name v- Vici, for a Swedish Swedish DJ. The only reason I know this is because it was. Um, it caught my attention. He was really, really like the uh, top DJ in, uh, around the world, actually. I went and his father spoke, you know, there's nothing worse. When a patient comes to my office and they're stressed over A, B, or C, said, do you have children? Are they healthy? I said, then, you, you're, then you're fine. There's no worse stressor than you as a parent outliving your kids. So nothing is ever worse than that. Ever, right? So everything could be uh, placed in perspective. This particular father t- talked about the DJ, uh, Avicii. Avicii was his name. Yep. I love him, by the way. He's a great DJ. He was a great DJ. Was a great DJ. Was it? So there's a little uh, documentary, whether it's on Netflix or wherever, where he had social anxiety. Now, here he is, this famous DJ, always so- around a lot of people, but really he had social anxiety. Did not drink. Until somebody's at some point said, look, you're too tense. Just have a drink. And it worked too well. Worked so well, right? Which is the part of the problem with alcohol. And there's a full spectrum of people with problems with alcohol that we're going to talk about, actually. In this particular case, it worked so well. So then, of course, what happens? You just keep drinking. You want to keep that going. He developed uh, pancreatitis which is cause extreme and excruciating pain. I had pancreatitis. Horrible. Right? Then he had to be hospitalized several times from it. And I want to know about that experience as well. We're going to go down your uh, trajectory for sure. And then he was hospitalized. And then from the pain, the pain is excruciating as you're going to, as you witnessed. And then he got hooked on opioids. Stop drinking, got hooked on opioids. Uh, still with the go, 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 very famous. Eventually, obviously, that led to his demise. And he, because he couldn't drink, but he was hooked on opioids and one thing led to another and so forth. The point of that story is, uh, and I have young kids and I have teenage daughters. And the other thing is, I don't want to completely digress here, but I think it's all connected. If you have, uh, there's two things I'm very passionate about, Gary, and you know this um, from our previous conversation. I'm very passionate about my work in urology and men's health and how can men live better with age. And I'm very passionate about parenting and fathering. It's so with daughters and, you know, I have a 10 year old son, so I don't know yet, but certainly with daughters, it's not a matter of, are you anxious? It's a matter of how anxious are you and what are you doing for your anxiety? 
with our daughters already teenage years, we already had the conversation. Hey, alcohol, be careful. Hey, if you start trying, it, it actually works and you get hooked and this is what happens and the consequences are this and so forth. So wanted to share that story, which is part of the reason in, uh, why I, am, I, I talk to patients. Uh, I spend about five minutes or so, depending on the situation, talking to patients about alcohol consumption. For you, 15 years old, you had all this trauma that you didn't realize, but then later on you realized through therapy. And now this thing is like, man, this thing works amazing. What, so as you kept getting older, now you're 17, 19, 21, et cetera. What was your behavior like? What was your relationship with alcohol like? Um, it was my God. It was, it was the center of my life. I created a whole universe around alcohol, like, you know, going into college and, you know, going into the fraternity and I'm like free beer, 24 seven, my place golf. So funnels, you, you did the whole funnel thing. Were you the king? Were you outdoing everyone else? Uh, no, but I made sure I had my posse around me so I didn't look bad. So I made sure I had people that drank as much as I did. I was the ice luge king. I was the funnel king. I beat everybody in chugging. Like I have banners to, to prove it. Um, the key here is my nickname is Party Fresh. In the 80s and 90s, Party Fresh. Party that was my nickname. Fresh. So like, like it, it's not Gary. So you were the life of the party, Gary. If, 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 you, if Gary is not coming, I'm not going. Look, I had money because I worked and I always had a business. So like my way out of the trauma I lived in was booze and money. I always knew, I, like I learned how to, I started working and I was eight years old because I was trying to escape from the pain I was in. I didn't know that I found two things. One at eight years old, my first, my first addiction was to money because I got a, I was making $5 a day. My grandfather and uncle would go to English town auction. We, my uncle invented the bottle stretching machine. So you, the Pepsi bottles that had the sand and the watercolors mm. in it. And we used to manufacture wow. those and sell them. Right. And I'm eight years old. I'm counting and I would get paid $5 a day. And I built up you know, and I was like, wow, I could buy my own clothes. I don't have to rely on anybody. I became independent. Um, is what I needed at the time. But, you know, then I became obsessed about, you know, the ability to make money and I never could make enough. See, addictions are you're trying to fill a black hole. And this is important to for anybody suffering out there. You can't outrun the black hole because no matter how much, like, you know, let's say Avicii, mm. right? Uh, Avicii. The adrenaline he got from being at a club and, and he spins and he gets that reaction is an addiction. So we find our way and usually early on, it might be healthy things, but they, they, we do them to an obsessive place and that becomes the addiction. So there's many, many addictions like being on your phone, being on social media, gambling, like it's all dopamine and adrenaline hits. It's like, and when you're used to getting that, you chase it. And, and, and like, I, you know, I was out with a, a dear friend um, and he's like, you know, he's 60 years old and he's like, Gary, there's so many women um, that are amazing. And they're like, they're widows and they're widows because their man was like a type A overachiever, didn't know how to shut it down, you know, drank, did drugs, or just like was so obsessed that just killed themselves, like workaholism and all those isms. And, um, you know, for me, that's what it was. It's like, you know, we, we tend to chase things and we don't know how to shut it down. And, you know, I, I am a searcher, I'm curious and I will figure out like, thank God you mentioned kids. My son at three years old saw me, he had autism at three, but like, and he, he would like look around. He wasn't looking around. He would flap his arms. He had like severe autism. And that's a part of this story too, that I want to bring in because it's a family disease. Um, I, yeah, thank very, you. Very good. Point. Um, very good. Point. I remember lifting a glass of Chardonnay and it was glistening and it caught his eye and he watched me drink it. Pause there for a second. Were you drinking it or guzzling it? Hybrid hybrid. And, and, and <laughs> it, right. Because the reason why I ask is because people don't know what they don't want to know. 
there's certain behaviors that I've noticed, Gary, where I would say, there's a drinking problem here. Well, I only do it on the weekends. Yeah, but the way you do it, you know, particularly when somebody's guzzling wine, wine is, uh, if you're going to take a shot of whiskey, that's a tequila, that's a different story. But guzzling wine, that's, that's abnormal behavior. And I don't know if there's studies on that particular, but that's, so when I, so wine, right? Yeah, I, I have a glass, you know, you sip it, you enjoy it, have conversations. When you're guzzling it, I, to me, that's, that's right there a sign. And, and you probably at that point, you saw some sort of dynamic with your three-year-old son at the time. And I can, you know, draw an image of knocking it down. Well, yeah. And, you know, like, here's the thing. If you're managing yourself, that's an indicator. If you're wondering, if you're sitting there wondering, you know, if I'm, if I'm, here's what, I'm going to give you some examples. Like my wife's like, yeah, you're drinking, seem like you drink a little bit too much. And like, she would notice how the bottle would go down. So I would have like six bottles open. So she couldn't tell if you're managing yourself like that, start raising your hand. Cause like, here's the thing. I'm a Jersey kid. You don't, you never talk about your problems. You shove them under the, under the rug and you just, you muscle up, put your armor on and get through the day. And I know tons of guys that do that. And the, the turning point is being able to surrender to the problem that I was in denial about it. I was like, ah, I was, I was a little drunkity drunk. I had a little drinkity drink on, I was slurring my words a little bit. Like I would always minimize it and deflect it. And if you're doing that, if you're spending your day doing that, or my whole day, this was my whole life. I would wake up hungover and be pissed that I drank. Then about, then I would either need to get to lunch to like drink something to get rid of the, like the pain. Or like I would say, I can't drink before five o'clock. So 501, I would hit the bar on the way home. Here you are, college, life of the party, frat parties. You, you, you know, I'm just not going to that party without Gary. And by the way, I, I remember that. I wasn't that guy, but I knew the guy that, yeah, I'm not going if, if, if whatever. John is not going. I'm not going. Right. All right. The younger you start drinking, the more probability there is of you having an alcohol problem as you move on and get older. So the younger you start. So 15, it's a pretty young age. So right there, the likelihood, you see anybody, any kid 15, you know, at the party sneaking in a drink. I I think those are red flags right from the beginning and not to overlook. Okay. The other thing is that the impact on alcohol for uh, on everybody's body and their ability and their enzymes to convert it to Acetyl aldehyde, which is the actual thing that does the so, so alcohol does uh, your, the body has to convert alcohol to this is enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase that converts it to acetyl aldehyde. Then acetyl aldehyde does everything how you feel and passes the blood brain barrier and you feel drunk and etc. Different people have a different response to alcohol. There are genetic variants where. You have a drink or two, you're feeling amazing. Another group of people, they have a drink or two or three, they feel lethargic and they want to pass out. So then you have the pass out people and then you have the people that actually are, can think better, can behave at least, you know, for temporary amount of time, behave better, have more energy, a rock, right? So I was always that guy. So, and I don't know, interestingly, so I have a long family history of alcoholism. I was not that, not even in college, and I don't know why, but one of the things is I just, two things, I think. One is I didn't feel good. So that feeling of, that you had of I'm on top of the world, I didn't feel that. I felt lethargic. Number two is this feeling of out of control never sat well with me, just the fact that I have no control, right? So, but it, so you have that full spectrum. So what I know is the younger you start drinking, the more of a problem there's going to be as you get older, number one. Number two, the better you feel, the more of a problem as you get older. So you are actually an example of that. Keep walking us through to your adult life and how it had an impact in your work, positive and negative, if there's any positive, actually, and how did it have an impact uh, uh, with your family? Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, 
I, I would get happier, right? Well, at least I thought I was happier and I have a lot of energy and I didn't realize this till I quit, but there's a lot of sugar in alcohol and it, it gave me a sugar high. Like I would get jacked up on sugar and I would be like talking and funny and laughing and doing crazy stuff. And you know how it impacted my adult life was, you know, the relationships I had was built around, you know, I would always go out. I would always, you know, be with women that would be like into drinking. Um, and then I lost some relationships because they, I drank too much and they even said it and, and that didn't work. So I, I lost relationships because of that. Do you also have a group of friends that were the drinking friends as well? And those were your main friends at the time? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, look, you only surround yourself with people that are that have like-minded beliefs. You know, there's this thing where it's like the 20% rule. You hang out with people that have 20% more money or less money than you make. Uh, the weight, you know, because the conversations are uncomfortable. Uh, you know, so like the drinking, it, like, you know, people didn't go like, why? I, I set up my whole universe. Like we would go to concerts, sporting events. You know, I remember my first, my first concert was Kiss at Madison Square Garden. And we went to this place called Charlie's. It was mm. like all you can drink wine. And we would just go there and get smashed and then go to the concert. And I was like, what, 18 or 19? And it's like, you know, golfing, you know, how can I justify drinking in the morning? Well, there's a cart girl that turns around. If I get a 7 a.m. tea time, I'm drinking early and I can justify it and do it all day for five hours. Like it was like that. Mm. I didn't know that I had a whole ecosystem excuse me, built around drinking. Now, the only thing stronger than my alcoholism was workaholism. So I had this thing where I could never wow. call in sick, no matter how hungover I would be. Um, and then I didn't realize that I started businesses. So nobody would call me out on my drinking. Like that's how far the ecosystem goes. It, it, it like, you don't realize, I didn't realize I was doing all this stuff, but like now looking back, this is how I help people to see if you're amassing this kind of living arrangement, you know, you want to just pay attention to it. So, you know, and then, you know, I would go to dental conventions and drinking was a norm there. And at what age did you start your dental business similar to what you have now? I first had a franchise. Uh, I had a money mailer franchise and that was the direct, that's how I got into dentistry. I was marketing for dental practices, but it's that cooperative direct mail piece that would go to your house, would have coupons in it. And I could make my own time. So if I started a little later, it wouldn't be a problem, stuff like that. And then I was in a dental business when I was about 28 years old. I, I sold my, my franchise and went into uh, the dental business and started out of my trunks one, one practice at a time. And, you know, uh, from there, I just, I, you know, I would show up hung over the next day. I can't believe no one called. It probably smelled like booze, but like. Who could have called you out at that point, Gary? Who, who in other words, that's a very difficult scenario. If you don't have a trusted, trusted friend yeah. or, a, or a spouse, who would have been that person at that time? You know, that's the problem with this disease. Most people don't want, they're afraid to like call you out. And that's why, like, I love you for what you do. Because when I saw you as, you know, I'm, you're my doctor and you asked me the straight up question. And the number one thing that happens that I see, Gio, is this. And I, I see this in the rooms that I'm in and because I help other alcoholics. I stay active with like helping other people because that's how you I maintain my sobriety. And they all say I lied to my doctor. You know, you're you like, you know, you really keyed in on that. And I could tell like you were like more of a pit bull around that. Like a lot of doctors, like a lot of the the guys that I work with, they I always lied to my doctor. They asked me how many drinks I had. And like, that was the, really the only person that was asking it. And if they, they just took it, you know, four drinks a weekend. Oh, okay. Goodbye. Meanwhile, you can see the guy's broken down. He's not looking like he's looking disheveled, you know, and it's like, he's drinking, you know, and he's not telling mm. the truth about it. And that's the denial piece. If you're yeah. listening to this and you're there, please raise your hand, call Gio, call me. I don't care who, call somebody, call the AA hotline. I don't care. But like, you know, Living in secret shame sucks. And going, if you're in that spiral of like, you say you're not going to drink in the morning because you're hungover, and then by 501, you're drinking again, like, you don't have to live like that. And by the way, I didn't know how to live without drinking because I drank every day for 20 years straight. So, did you think in your head that you were more functional um, when, while drinking? So, the only way I can get the work done. The only way I can function is with alcohol. Was that 
your inside conversation? I'm wide open. So I'm going to give you everything because I believe that, you know, the more I can be transparent and full and not leave anything out, Gio, is that's when like it makes a difference. So, you know, like at first it was party fresh and I would drink party fresh. By the way, pause for a second, because that's actually first of all, I love <laughs> I have to say <laughs> don't. Don't be so. I don't want to call you party fresh uh, moving forward, but it's such a great, great term. That's a that's a whole identity though around that that doesn't go away. Is it potentially part of the problem? Like, hold on, I have to drink. I'm party fresh. Yes, I became first. I had alcohol, then alcohol had me, and then it just became my persona. What's going to happen? I, I knew all the best parties. I created the best parties. Um, you know, it just became my way of living. And su- it was really survival. It didn't look like survival. If you looked at me, you're like, this guy has cash. He's got a beautiful woman on his arm. He drives a Porsche. He lives in a penthouse. Like, you're living the life. I got it wrong. This guy has it right. That was and like, I want to live that. That's that the was life my I want to live. Armor. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. You see those people. You see your 20, 30-year-old self out there because I see those guys. Right away, you know what's happening? Oh, not always. I don't prejudge because some are, you know, some are legit. But if you're young and you're driving a 911 and, you know, I mean, once I talk with them, then I can get a sense of what they're living through. But like ego and pride is what's underneath it all. And that's what actually gets in the way of getting sober. And most people have two live in two separate worlds, the um, chronic way and the social way. And it's, it's exhausting to have your transparent integrity here and then living a life and holding it all together out there. It, it, it crashes at some point. Um, it always crashes at some point. Oh, wait, I've never seen it not. And, and so at that point, you have not crashed yet. You're 29, 28. You haven't I had some glimpses. in air quotes, right? Crash. Cause you were, the signs were there. You were kind of, but nothing uh, big enough for you to say, I have a problem. Well, I had a whole infrastructure and that's why I had an old infrastructure built to keep me safe, to do what I wanted to do. Um, it's not until you get leverage. That's why, like, when I tell people, when I, when, when a young guy comes to me, I had a, I had a doctor sit, she said, can you talk to my son? He wants to talk to you. He's willing. He knows he drinks too much. He's 25. And I talk to those guys and I'm going, I'm going to be straight up. You're effed. And I just, I just straight. Cause that's the way if, if I was a person yeah. that age, that's what I needed. That's what I would have needed. You're effed. And here's why you have no leverage to stop. You don't have a wife complaining. You don't have a kid you're responsible for. You don't even have a house. And a lot of these young guys that I mm. they I have them see that their life become like I'm a crazy Yankee fan, like I know you are, right? Ah, uh, yeah, right. I love you for that. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, these tools and everything we talk about, they do apply to Red Sox fans as well. I just want to make sure <laughs> that they're they don't and and Met fans and Met fans. Yeah, you, you're included. You're included in in this in this conversation. <laughs> this is the only time. All other times, you know, I know you have to drink to deal with your teams, and I guess it's okay. <laughs> so we'll 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 be okay. That's right. But like one more question, Gary, with regards to that phase, right, of twenties to thirty, because I also know in the man's life there's different phases, right, and and you go through whatever. Best book, best book in the world. You ready? Keys to the kingdom. Keys to the kingdom. Alison Armstrong. It wasn't until I read that that I understood that men go through phases. I love that. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. Keys to the kingdom. Yep. Thank you for that. What I know from alcohol consumption, and not, again, not so much that, thank God, I mean, look, I just never really liked it, actually. I don't know why, honestly. It's a, it's a whole different, and it's not like, you know, everybody, a lot of people have family trauma growing up, so I had my own share but alcohol wasn't it for me. Food actually was it for me. That's my comfort, right? And still potentially is, right? There were times where you were irritable, impulsive. There has to yep. be because that's part of what happens during that. So A, w- w- throughout your 20s and, and even your 30s, 
when that happened, what you still be, were able to be functional. And then you were saying, well, it might, I'm a functional, I'm functional. So I don't have a problem. What was, what was your internal dialogue like? It was like, I knew I had a problem for 10 years before I quit. I knew I had a problem, but I stayed with the devil. I knew rather than the devil. I didn't know, which was life without alcohol. So I kept the devil I knew as in as much check as I could until I got married. Mm, and at what age did you get married? I got married at 39. Mm -hmm. Thank God. And mm -hmm. all the women before I met my wife, Judith, I dominated. I dominated. Okay. Gary, that's so powerful. That is so powerful. And before, obviously, there some people just don't get married. And hopefully there's tips out there that you can share with those people as well. I have a patient that six years ago, six years ago, I was like, there's a problem here with alcohol. And he's a consistent patient for a long time. And I said, look, he's in a new relationship at the time. I said, you're going to screw it up with her if you don't stop drinking. I don't know what your motivating factor here would be for you. Maybe prostate, maybe urinate. But I know you have a good woman and you're going to lose her. Six years later, he's sober, texts all the time. Thank you. This is the best thing that have ever happened to me. Yep. 39, you get married to hopefully the wife that you, you're still married to her. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. 20, 22 years. Amazing. And so then, so then what happened? We partied early. She and I, we had the best time. We traveled all around the world. But there was a level of respect that I had for her that I didn't have because she was a stand. She was an independent woman and stood for what she believed in. And then she wanted to have a relationship. And so she was interdependent. And that was really, I knew that Sub, my subconscious knew that I needed to be with a woman like that because she was not going to put up with party fresh. Right. You had to be, you had to be Gary Katie here. You can't be party fresh. Yes. Yes. Well, no, I could be like to a certain degree until, um, and we got to a point where this guy, he's now 18. Uh, this is my son, Rome. He's now 18. Mm. So we're, we're That's traveling right. all around the, uh, the world and we're having the time of our life. We get married and then we have a son. He's three. We're living in Arizona at the time. And I'm running a business. And I've always been successful. I've always been profitable no matter what, which is just like a miracle. You know, it's jet propulsion because it was my survival, right? Booze and money. We're like... So you never crash. You never... Because of drinking, you never... You, you had to close a business because uh, it wasn't working. That never happened. I was always sober enough not to screw it all up. You know, I've had glimpses like, you know, I, uh, I remember being on Route 3 in Clifton, New Jersey. It was backed up. I was hungover. And I was like, why is this backed up? And we're sitting there for a half hour and I was going to get out of my car. And I wasn't thinking. All of a sudden, a car comes flying down and like misses hitting me like by this much, like stuff like that. I've had that, but like, you know, which sort of near near death experiences, near misses like that. Right cops like you know I, I lived in new york city so like i again another example of like living in a place that i could like you know get by and not have to drive things like that right so i would avoid never had a dui thank god um it's just uh, yeah it's just like but i i would be so like alert like i would like no matter how drunk i would get i would like i could turn it it was the weirdest thing anyway you know and it enabled me to drink for a lot of years until this one day happened. So it was December of 2007. And we're having a Christmas party. It's in Scottsdale, Arizona. I have my entire team. We have a private room. I order cars for everybody because I want to drink, right? I, you know, I figure let, let me get a car so we mm. could all get drunk. And, and you're married at this point, right? Married. My wife's sitting next to me at the meeting. We have 12 team members at right. the time back in the day. I, I started drinking early, two martinis, and then I had a bottle of my own wine right there, and I was just drinking. And I go, it was my time to, to say the annual speech of like, you know, a CEO does. And I'm like, this was an effed up year. You guys suck. I'm like, this is BS. We're never going to do this year again. And my wife, under the table, 
is taking her nails in my thigh and twisting and pinching. I felt it for a second and I just kept going. And we got home and I woke up the next morning and in Arizona, it sucks because it's always sunny in the morning and you're hungover. Like you, you could feel the sunlight and without opening your eyes and the pain. And then I felt a person standing over me with her arms crossed and she looks down at me and says, look, she says, hey, party fresh. You can do whatever you want, but if you're wanting to drink and continue, uh, you can do that and stay here. I'm taking our son and we are now moving to New York City because I'm going to get him healthy. If you want to come, I, I'm, I'm only going to take you if you're going to be sober. If you don't want to get sober, don't come because I'm going to get this kid healthy. If you want to come with me, that's what the conditions are going to be. She, she's, this is what I knew mm. about her. She's a powerful woman that is not an enabler at all. She, she didn't say I had to quit. She mm. said, if you want to come with us, this is what's going to happen. And here are the conditions. So I had a choice to make. Boo's family choose. Mm. And it was like, she goes, and you, you, I can't trust your word. Your word means nothing to me because you told me you wouldn't drink and you still do. Um, then we tried to control it. You can only drink with me and you didn't drink with me. And, or you drank without me. So your word means shit. So uh, you're gone. And if, you know, you'll, you'll, you let me know through your actions, not your words, because you can't charismatic me on this. Mm. And this is how it's going to go. And so... I called the guy who I knew had 30 years of sobriety and my uh, friend of a friend. And he told me what to do. He said, go to go online, get a meeting, go there and call me when you're done. And I did that. AA meeting. Yep. AA meeting. It's the only thing that worked. Cause I did try mm -hmm. before that hypnosis. Cause I didn't want to do AA. Cause that meant I would have to be a true alcoholic. So I didn't want to do AA. I did smart. Right. They had this smart control right. drinking that did not work for me. Um, but I was trying to do all this stuff mm. just to appease my wife. And you cannot quit an addiction for somebody else. That was the other lesson I learned because that was in December. I didn't, my full sobriety date is May 1st, 2008. It took me like six months to get it right. And she was leaving. Mm. Like she was on, I, she was on a jet plane. She was taking my son. I was about to lose everything. Um, and I finally got it right. Uh, thank the dear Lord. I got that right. And I'm forever, forever indebted to my wife for being Amazing. a stand. And that's why Gio, like, please, listeners, when Gio asks you how much you drink, tell the truth to Gio, because it might be the first time that will change your life. Like, and I know we avoid my fellow, if 100%. you're dealing with somebody or you know somebody, we avoid, we deny, we don't want to tell the truth about it. And a guy like Gio is a stand for people to be healthy and well. And you're an interrupter. You interrupt you know, the natural patterns that people need. And I always say, Gio, if it's not you, it's not going to be a barista or it's not going to be a wife that's tiptoeing through the tulips. If yeah. you're a wife out there, a spouse out there, go for it because they need, like, mm. we need somebody to help us. We can't do it on our own. And that's the other thing an alcoholic mm. is we that's want, right. we think we have to do everything on our own. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. And the biggest lesson I got are two things. I'm not my circumstances. We're always going to have problems and there's ways to deal with them. And the AA program gives you those, gives you the tools in the tool belt. And then the other thing is no one wins alone. I don't care if you're, you're the best golfer in the world. You got it. Mm. You got trainers and developers. Those two things. I'm bigger than my circumstances, no matter how big they are. I mean, how big those circumstances are. I can always walk through them. There's the lesson in the circumstances. And then the second thing is no one wins alone. And what I mean by that is, um, Raising your hand for help is actually a strength, not a weakness. And if you know you're struggling with something, raising your hand actually gives you freedom the minute you raise your hand. So the minute I said I was an alcoholic, my shoulders came down. I could see, I could hear again. So that acceptance of saying I am, a, so accepting that that's a, a very powerful moment. And until that point is going to be, it's going to be difficult. Help. It's yeah. living hell. Yeah. The three A's we call it. First, you have to become aware for yourself that you have a problem. Then you have to acknowledge the problem outward. And we call it getting it past your teeth. If you don't get it past your teeth, you're living in secret shame. And then the third A is action. So it's awareness, mm -hmm. acceptance, and action. That's the process. And by the way, I use that in everything I do now. 
weight loss. Mm. It, it applies to everything. Yeah, th- those concepts are, are transferable for sure. Gary, so here you are. You're now um, six months sober. How old are you at the time? I'm 44. And, and in the book, like in that book, A Keys to the Kingdom, they talk about the turning points of a man's life. And it usually happens in the 40s, early 50s. If you don't make that turn, you either go to jail, die, something happens, and you're forced to change. Like that's my own take on that. Interesting. Thank you for that recommendation. I wasn't aware of that book, and it's going to be ordered. Certainly, uh, I'm a book geek, so it's going to be ordered after we talk. 44. During those six months, how long did it take for you to forgive yourself of all your F-ups, right? So, right, because, right? Thank you for being vulnerable with me. I appreciate it. Tell me when you can, Gary, why the tears when you have a, when you, when you can, and there's no rush. Yeah. It's like, you know, that's like the last part, but it's like the quicker you get to forgiveness for all things for forgiving, you know, Mm. there's a part like you, you make amends to people and like you say, look, like I have to take responsibility for my actions and, how I had I had acts of omission, not acts of commission. Mm. Some alcoholics commit, steal, mm. cheat, do all kinds of crazy shit, and that's acts of commission. I had a hard time because I had acts of omission. I would show up at my my go down to my parents' house, and I would fall asleep for three hours when I got there because I was hungover and wasted, and I I wasn't available to them. Their son mm. was not available, and like what we do is like. We think we're sweeping this stuff under the rug. And it's not until you, like, you brought me back, G. The reason for the tears is you brought me back to the moment I forgave myself. And, like, Hmm. it it is the most liberating thing when a person forgives themselves for their past. It gives you a new footing, a new foundation to live life from. And um, you don't know it. Like, there's no instruction book. And even if you don't drink, I believe that AA would be amazing because there's a lot of people that that don't forgive themselves. And, like, I always take, and my picture is, like, a, a Yankee bat, those small little Yankee bats that they sell at the stadium. Mm-hmm. Like, if I would make one little mistake throughout the day, I would take right. the bat out and, like, beat myself up. And, like, I use that as a driving force to get better. But there's a point where I couldn't be kind to other people. I couldn't forgive other people. I couldn't be compassionate to other people until I was actually that for myself. And, you know, and by the way, I went to my dad and after all the beatings and after all the shit that I took, um, I said, Dad, please forgive me for being, you know, hungover and drunk around you. And it probably caused you to worry about me and everything. And I'm so sorry. And he said, son, I want to apologize for being the dad that I was to you because I only did what my dad did. And I was 19 years old when I had you. And I just mm-hmm. did what he did. And I passed it along. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. And like, you know, my dad passed away last year and I held his hand to heaven. and there was no bad energy there at all. And that's like the power of like forgiveness. And that's the power mm. of like taking responsibility and like, you know, cause we shirk mm. responsibility, Gio, we don't want to be responsible and the freedom comes from being responsible. And it all starts with you with yourself. Like we got to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first before we go do it to somebody else. We got to be forgiving to ourselves. Like I was compassionate to my dad because I was compassionate to myself. My wife would always say to me, Jay, can you give me a little damn compassion? And I go, I am, God damn it. And like, you know, even that response was like, I wasn't, I had no muscle for compassion. I didn't know what it was. It got shut down early in my life. And when I got sober and as I got more sober and I stayed on the path, I got to see and all the shells, all the the layers of the onion started getting peeled off. And all we want, ultimately, 
this is it. One thing. And I read it in Ben Hardy's book. And he put it so succinctly. The opposite of addiction is connection. I had a Porsche because I wanted people to respect me and like me. I wanted a beautiful girl because they could say he's got a beautiful girl. Like it was all about looking good, but like where the answer lies in myself by getting like to know that why I drank early on was to be connected to people and be able to go. We used to go to roller skating rink and like meet girls. And that was the thing. And like, I could only do that if I had a drink. I only wanted to be connected. You peel all this away, all the money, all the shit, all the stuff. And it's being connected. Like my wife and I practice, like we'll argue. And she's like, we're practicing separation now. Let's interrupt this. Let's not do this. And like, we have this thing called separation. Like I used to walk around, argue with my wife after I was getting sober and I wouldn't talk to her for a week, a whole week. That's crazy. That's a week wasted in our time. And we now, because we're older, she turned 60 yesterday, Jay. We don't want to spend a minute separated. And we really practice that because we get mad at each other, but it's like, we stop, we forgive, we say, I'm sorry. That wasn't happening if I didn't go through this sobriety thing and like really understand. Step 10 in the process is uh, you look back on your day at the end of your day and you do an inventory of, did I treat somebody poorly? Was I selfish? Did I serve people today? Like you you actually do a, a, a an audit at the end of each day. And the next day I'm on the phone and this, by the way, my business took off. Why? Because I, I treated people with respect and compassion. If they made a mistake before when I was drinking, mm. I don't know how I had a team of people because I was short with them. I'm like, get it done. And mistakes were not acceptable because that's how the makeup of this thing was going on over here. Oh man, excuse me. I didn't, I didn't mean, I, you really hit like a core with me with this forgiveness today, Gio. And I'm grateful because sometimes, you know, I have a built-in forgetter. I got to go back to that day. You brought me back to that day that I forgave myself. And, and, and it's a memory, you know, and that's like, I could talk about the therapy around this because it's really powerful. I found one form of therapy that worked after, because you can't do therapy while you're drinking. It doesn't work. Right. Right. But there's a form of therapy that. I What's found. that form of therapy? Yeah. That's internal family systems is called. Internal family system. IFS. 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 And there's a program at the Karen Center in Reading, Pennsylvania that I went to that was life changing. It was a week and you shut your phone off and you go to work on the on the inside job here. And then I met my coach therapy by Dave and he's like, Dave Adamusco is like a lifesaver for me. And now I live, I was telling my wife, I go, honey, I have lived such a peaceful, joyous, fulfilled life. And I'm not chasing money and I'm not chasing alcohol. I'm just chasing connection with people. Your best life after 44. And, and you know, I don't say that to brag. I say that to give hope to people. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, man, first of all, um, you know, so powerful. Thank you for being okay with being vulnerable. If it's okay with you, we'll keep we'll keep this because I think that that level of realness is going to impact a lot of people. Well, I hope so, G, because that's my new, like my whole world, just to close out how you maintain this, because you know, a very small amount of people maintain it after a year, is you give it away. You can't keep something if you hold on to it. And mm. I want you to know the privilege mm. that it has been today because man, you hit a core place that I haven't gotten to in a long time uh, through your interviewing. You're a beautiful interviewer and you really stand for the greatness of men, especially. And men don't have a place to mm. be vulnerable, to be transparent, to mm. be honest. You know, we we got we we get a we get an injury, we rub dirt in it and keep going. And that's not right. that is not the way God meant for men to be. It just ended up that way. Lastly, throughout the years of you drinking, any health problems that you could say, yeah, that was directly linked to, to drinking, whether it's high liver enzymes or urinary frequency or prostatitis, or was there anything that you saw that your doctor saw, but you know, you overlooked uh, uh, and were there any yeah. consequences later on? Oh yeah. Inflammation, all the itises. I had pancreatitis. I had uh, 
what is diverticulitis. You talk about the most vicious pain in the world. Um, I haven't seen the science about this. Um, but for me, mm. my, I have a right hip replacement at, uh, at a very young age. Um, I, I really believe it broke, you know, broke down, you know, my, my mm. joints, um, for sure. I, I connect that. Mm. Um, the biggest thing for me is like, it's not the drinking, it's the impact of the family. It's the stress that it placed on me and the stress that it placed on my body. I'm a big believer now in psychosomatic, uh, disorders, um, I follow Louise Hay. Um, I believe in the mind creates the body. Um, I might be going out of my lane here with you, but like um, uh, this for me is uh, something I I okay. I espouse to because I know that um, you know when you reduce the stress and you get present, like I get present. And I now I meditate and I pray and I'm connected to my body. Um, I didn't have those tools back in the day. And, um, you know, I went down, I mean, I had, you know, I had all kinds of problems like that, you know, cholesterol issues, all that now. And and when you're drinking, you don't care about your body. You're doing so slow suicide. So my responsibility of going to preventive care practitioners mm. was zero because I'm like, mm. I don't want to know what's going on in my body. Cause then I'm going to have to quit drinking like that. I can connect those two dots. So it's bigger than just the alcohol going into mm. the body. It's the, it's the mental stress that it plays on the physical stress. And then the mental that keeps me blocked from practitioners like you. And then I would only go to them reactively if I had a problem, you know, versus proactively because I want to be healthy and well, because you can't be healthy and well, if you're drinking every day, you can't. One of the things I, I learn throughout, uh, again, I did, uh, deep scientific research as it relates to alcohol consumption and the impact on health. One of the things I learned is that the body is incredible, including the liver in terms of regenerating. So alcohol really starts uh, causing a lot of harm to the liver and brain neurons, brain cells, because a metabolite of alcohol passes, passes the blood brain barrier. And it literally starts diminishing the functioning of these neurons, period, end of story. The good news is that all these cells regenerate and it could take, depending on how long the person has been drinking, Yep. but it could take um, two months, six months, 12 months, and these things start to regenerate. The body's an incredible machine. If you take care of it and if you, I can't look, I'll have a glass of wine on Friday, Gary. Alcohol is a poison. I think we need to look at it that way. And we need to stop overlooking that. It's a poison. World Health Organization, what's the amount of alcohol that one can have that where you can keep I have no and sustain idea. health? Zero. Interesting. Zero. Zero. Canadian Health Organization. Don't know. What's the amount of alcohol that you can have to sustain health? Zero. The last time the U.S. has looked at this, and they have uh, guidelines from up until 2025. The guidelines say, well, up to one drink a day in females is fine. Two drinks a day in men are fine. Uh, two drinks a day. That is not true. I can tell you as a clinician, I can tell you as a researcher, I can tell you as somebody who sees the impact on alcohol, two drinks a day. And then if you don't, you know, uh, actually, I, I used to, by the way, I used to say that years ago, two drinks a day is okay. Then a patient asked me, so what if I don't drink from Monday through Thursday? Can I have eight drinks on Saturday and Friday night? That's actually a very good question. And the bottom line is whether you spread it out or you have it all, it's really poisonous to your body, your behavior, your social life, and it will have a tremendous impact. Gary, yep. you said it best. This has an impact on your, this is a family problem. Prostate cancer is a family problem. Yeah. Any severe disease is a family problem. Alcoholism is a family problem. And we'll end with this, Gary. In my opinion, how do I know if I have an alcohol problem? Because, you know, it's not like I wake up in the morning, and have to drink before functioning. Some people would say that. I had a patient yesterday. He says, you know, my wife always jokes with me and she says, uh, John, you, I think you have a, you have an alcohol. I think you have, you may have an alcohol problem. She was joking. No, if a loved one says that, 
is probably true. No one will ever say, yeah, I think you have an alcohol problem. The other things I've seen with family members is, and, and people I love is if you need to see the bottle empty, yep. even if it's just on weekend, but the bottle needs to be empty, right? That's a problem. If you are chugging with the exceptions of, and, and look, this is an opinion. If you are over a certain age, I'm not sure if there are any event scenario where you should be chugging a shot of anything after a certain age. So I don't know if some cultures do that. And I think some cultures do that. But, you know, all in all, if you're after a certain age, you shouldn't be. All right, let me get another one. You keep knocking them down. That's probably not a good sign either. But if you are having things like wine and you have to chug the wine and you're kind of gulping it, chugging it, that's a problem. And, and the reason why I'm saying these particular instances, because I've seen people create stories. Oh, I don't have a problem. But then you see these behaviors. Right. Or you see other people making comments. A. Am I right with these experiences and opinions? B, is there anything else that you would add to that? Yeah, great, uh, great uh, start there. Um, you know, my one of my favorites, G, is like, we don't like leaving a table at a restaurant that has a half, a glass half full, <laughs> like pounds down, like, or, or like you want to, but you don't because it would look bad. Like, that's a great example. Um, you know, like if you're, and, and I always say the thinking is the first step. If you're thinking about drinking or if you're sitting there wondering, oh, I probably shouldn't have another one. Like, you know, I, I think I'm drinking too much. Like you're talking to yourself. If you're like, we always say like in, in the program, like my wife doesn't need a chair at an AA meeting. Like she's not wondering if she needs a chair. If you're wondering, that's a good place to start. If you're in wonderment about whether you drink too much or not, perfect. The answer is usually not it usually means that you are. If you're counting other people's drinks, if you're wondering how, if people are looking at your drinks, how much you're drinking, those are all beautiful indicators of um, that. If you wake up in the morning and you say, oh my God, I can't believe I drank again. And I, the morning is a good indicator because what happens is mm. there's a quiet moment when you first wake up and you go, oh my God, I can't believe I did it again. And I said, I wouldn't do that. By the way, that's your personal integrity at stake. And when you break your personal integrity, you can't trust yourself with anything. The, the, the minute you, st you say, I'm not going to drink today, and you string days like that together, that's when you're going to get self-trust. That's when you're going to start trusting yourself. But if you say to yourself, I'm not going to drink today, and you do, then all bets are off. And then the rest of your life, you're living in uncertainty because you cannot trust yourself when you give your word to something. It your actions don't match. So that's what happens. You actually get a lot more self-confidence when you quit drinking. Most people are trying to drink to get self-confident. Excellent. Now, this is really the last thing. I do think that Alcoholic Anonymous, I find to be is one of the most amazing organizations that I know across the board from experience with everyone I've ever spoken that are members of that organization. I know there are numerous organizations to help people through alcohol and uh, becoming sober, but still I have not seen one better than AA. Your thoughts on that? And is that the way to go? If somebody's really serious about, you know, becoming sober, is that the way to go? No doubt. It's in, in my opinion, I tried everything because I did not want to do that. It was my last resort and it was the only thing that worked. And there's a reason why it works. It's tried and true. It's step work. It's like, it, it cleans out things so that you can start living again newly. No program does it. Um, I also want to highlight this, the sister program, which is Al-Anon. The people that live with an alcoholic, you think you have to get the alcoholic to AA. How you can start getting them sober is by you going to Al-Anon because you'll detach. You don't realize this is a family disease and you might be the one enabling that alcoholic and you getting help in that environment makes a difference. And I just want to give a shout out to the program, to the program affecting the entire family. My son's off the autism spectrum. We gave him biomedical treatments, therapies, hyperbaric. I wouldn't have done any of that work if I wasn't sober. And my wife couldn't have done it, you know, without our team. And it was a team approach. And now he's going, he's going to use his voice where he couldn't speak when he's five and a half, use his voice to be a play-by-play -play guy. He's going to the Cronkite School of um, journalism in, in Arizona State. And Gio, I share that with you because this is a family disease. 
and you don't have to do it alone. Whether you you know someone, go to, you know you can get help. If you are that person, you know where to go now, and um, you don't have to suffer anymore. I always say this, and I'll leave this last quote. Pain is necessary. Suffering is optional. Pain tells you that you can't continue down the same road. If you stay in it, the suffering of that pain, and you don't look for a solution out, you're staying in the problem, that's on you. So that's my closing statement. I love it. I love it. Hey, man, this has been a powerful, powerful interview, and not even an interview conversation. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge. Thank you for uh, allowing yourself to be vulnerable here. I think so many people are going to be helped from this conversation and this podcast. I love you dearly. We don't talk as often as I'd like to with you, but I think that once we got connected through Michael Fishman, who is a dear friend of both of us, and then we connected and we connected in Arizona. And when we connect, it's just like where we left off. It's like amazing. I'm privileged to be in this relationship with you. And how can people find out more about you and what you have to offer in your business? Yeah, I mean, I, I do it. This isn't about my business. I'm happy to help. You can just go to Next Level Practice and just go on the web form and just say, I want to talk to Gary about sobriety and happy to do that. Or I'll, I'll give you my email, which is gary at nextlevelpractice.com. I'm happy to talk to anybody that might be either struggling or know somebody is struggling and you want to want to do it. I also have a group of doctors that I created because uh, doctors were afraid to go uh, out and be unveiled. So I have a Zoom group of doctors that meet that can't wait to meet the next doctor to help them because their life is better and they're not drinking. So I help a lot of doctors get off, get off uh, addictions as well. Excellent. Gary, thank you so much. Hope to see you soon in person. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Gio. Have a great day. Thanks for the invitation today. You too, brother. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in a world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.